It is the sentence of this court that Theseus Cyprianus be executed with the sword. Cyprian, thanks be to God. Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod President Pastor Matt Harrison speaking at this year's Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. So, I would rather lay down on this spot and have my head chopped off than give up the Word of God. But with that strong, biblically informed conscience, I shall face my day and age. You shall face this day and age. We will confess Christ no matter what we face. And we will bear witness to a better way in Jesus. Come what may. Amen. You can watch and listen to Pastor Matt Harrison making the case for the Lutheran option from the 2023 Making the Case Conference for a $300 gift by Labor Day. You can access an on-demand video stream or download a podcast of the entire conference. Order today at issuesetc.org. Got all these great answers to all these great questions. We have listeners with questions about how a Christian rightly uses their reason. If there are aliens, what does that mean? Could it possibly be in Christian theology a place for alien life? And some other questions, one having to do with every Sunday communion. Welcome back to Issues Etc. Coming to you live. From the studios of Lutheran Public Radio in Collinsville, Illinois, I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. It's time to respond to your unanswered Bible questions. Joining us to do so, Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer. He is a Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod pastor and author of the book, Reading Isaiah with Luther. Brian, welcome. Oh, great to be here, Todd. And Pastor Brian Wolfmiller, author of several books, including His American Christianity Failed. Brian, welcome to you. Thank you, Todd. First question comes from David he asks, what scripture supports including the Lord's Supper in the Lord's Day service? I ask because the Lord's Supper is not offered every week at my congregation in Canada, yet given our doctrine of the sacrament, why would it not be, unless it is perhaps not a scriptural requirement? However, even if it's not a requirement, why would we not have the Lord's Supper each week? What logic supports skipping any Sundays or any other service? Also, why is communion excluded from weddings and funerals. Pastor Wolf Miller. Well, the first thing to note is that the Lord does not give us instructions on how often we should celebrate the supper, at least not like the old Passover meal, which was the last supper that they celebrated, the last Passover meal, before Jesus then instituted the feast of the New Testament of his body and blood with the promise of the forgiveness of sins. The old Passover meal was celebrated very specifically once a year, the New Testament meal of the Lord's Supper is celebrated according to the Lord's institution often. That's how Paul describes it, in quoting the words of Jesus in 1 Corinthians 11. So we don't have a day to schedule it or a pattern that the Lord has given. We are just given the biblical mandate that we do it often. And the church has said that that often should at least be on Sundays, on the Lord's Day, and perhaps more often. The Lutherans inherited that practice. They say we have the Lord's Supper every Lord's Day and every Feast's Day, and so that was common among them. And they, in fact, the Lutherans bragged that they celebrated it more often than their Catholic interlocutors who would say, hey, we have it every day, but people wouldn't go. The priests would celebrate it, but the people wouldn't go to it. Or they would go, but they wouldn't participate. They wouldn't eat the body of Jesus, and they couldn't drink because the blood of Jesus was withheld from the laity. So that practice of having the Lord's Supper on every Sunday and every feast day is the Lutheran practice. Now, why would you not do that? Probably the one reason 
why you wouldn't is that you don't have a pastor. And I think that's what really shaped a lot of the practice in the United States, especially as the churches were being built out in the West and they were being cared for by circuit writers. We say, again, in our Lutheran confessions, that we don't permit a man to preach or teach or administer the sacraments unless they've been rightly called. And that grows out of a really good understanding of Romans 10. How can they hear unless they are preached to? And how can they preach and be preached to unless they're sent? So this sending and calling is part of the Lord's work. So if we don't have a pastor, the question asks, why would you not have it? If you don't have a pastor, then you are waiting for the pastor to come to bring you the body and blood of Jesus. Some other reasons are given why you wouldn't, but they're not good reasons. Like the one that I hear a lot of times is, well, if you had the Lord's Supper every Sunday, then it wouldn't be special. But that is a misunderstanding of how spiritual desire works. It's not like hunger. You know, if you eat all the time, then you're stuffed and you're not hungry. But spiritually, it works really the opposite. And we know this just from experience. When you go to church, you want to go to church more. When you read the Bible, you want to read the Bible more. But being away from church doesn't make you want to go even more. It makes you want to go less. That desire starts to fade. And so our desire for the Lord's Supper is along with our taking it. So it's good that the church, the Missouri Synod especially, encourages congregations to practice the Lord's Supper as often as possible, weekly if possible. And that's a very good encouragement to keep that word often. I think just on the final point, why not at weddings and at funerals? We remember that the Lord's Supper is always a public service. So if a wedding is by invitation, it is by definition not public, open to all Christians who confess the same thing. And so we want to be careful to avoid private communion. And so if there's an invitation event, then we don't want to have the Lord's Supper in that place, just remembering that the Lord's Supper is always a public event. And I think for funerals, you could have the supper if you wanted to. And I think a lot of times for pastors, the supper is offered at their funeral. But it's good to remember that a funeral service is not for the dead, it's for the living. We're there to bury the dead, to put them to rest so they can wait for the resurrection. So a funeral service is doing something different than the divine service. And that's, I think, why communion is not normally celebrated in the rite of burial. A question for you, Pastor Ketchelmeyer, from Lynn. My question concerns Genesis 3. God said that he will put enmity between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. Who is God talking to? Genesis 3 does not say that the serpent is Satan concerning the offspring. Who is the woman's offspring? If it is Jesus, then we are talking humans. Who is the offspring of the serpent? Does the serpent produce children? Okay, so this is uh, interesting about the idea of offspring, of children, of seed, and trying to come to terms with what are we talking about in this passage of promise. And, and so we do have the context, of course, immediately after this, this promise is given, that you have, of course, two children. You have Cain and you have Abel. And so you, you do have a distinction here between Abel, who is justified, believes, is a repentant sinner, but you have Cain, who is unrepentant, does not have that faith there. He lets sin overtake him and rule over him. And so Cain actually acts like a child of the devil, if you will, because the devil is a murderer and a liar from the beginning. And this is how Jesus will refer to those who do not 
listen to him, who do not hear his word. When he talks in John chapter eight, when he says, if you're truly my disciple, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free, that you'll continue to learn from me. I mean, this is Jesus talking in John eight, where he says to those who refuse to listen, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and he does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. So the devil is a liar and a murderer. And when we talk in the scripture about this language of those who follow in footsteps of the devil, they are sons of disobedience. This is what Paul will refer to them in Ephesians chapter two, that the devil of course is at work in the sons of disobedience. So it's not that the devil has children per se in the same way that a woman through conception and birth has a child, but it's in this understanding of the fallen human nature being under the reigning and the ruling of the devil, who has blinded the unbelieving world, who has closed the ears so they cannot hear. Now, the opposite, of course, is the Holy Spirit and the indwelling and the believer and the baptized, who is working through the gospel to continue to bring forth children of God. So you have that language in Galatians chapter four, after talking about baptism, that those who have been baptized have been clothed with Christ. And so you have a distinction between Hagar and Sarah and the children of Hagar and Sarah. So again, that understanding of Hagar being the slave woman. So those are the the Jews in the synagogue who rejected Jesus are like Hagar. They are sons of slavery, whereas those who are of the church who receive Jesus as the Messiah, the promised Savior, the one who is the seed who would crush a serpent's head, they are of the promise. They're children of the promise. So that's what we see in this passage when we talk about the language of offspring or a seed, or even in the New Testament when you have those who are rejecting Jesus and you have them called sons of the broods of a viper. You are serpents. You're you're murderers. I mean, so that's the idea. That's not a pleasant term, but you are of the devil, meaning that you you follow after the devil, not a falling after Christ. Now, when we go back to that passage in Genesis chapter three, who is God speaking to? Well, directly he's speaking to the serpent. But of course, when he speaks to the serpent, it's about the demise of the serpent. It's about the punishment of the serpent. It's about the separation of the serpent from humanity, from God's chosen, God's saved, God's elect, uh, God's children. And so that promise is actually spoken to the devil, but it's spoken in the ears of Adam and Eve so that they can hear the promise that the seed of the woman is going to crush a serpent's head. So later on, of course, in the book of Isaiah, when he expounds upon this in Isaiah chapter seven, verse 14, where we say, behold, the virgin, she shall conceive and bear a son and his name shall be called Emmanuel, which is God with us. So that is spoken to the serpent. Now, we know that the serpent, of course, is the devil. It doesn't say the devil in the text, doesn't say Satan in the text. But understand that the devil is one who is a slanderer. I mean, that's what devil means. Or Satan is accuser. So these are titles of description of the activity of the devil. And we see this very clearly making the connection throughout all of scripture in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 12, where we hear about the great dragon was thrown down. Well, who's the great dragon? Well, he's the ancient serpent. Uh, Who is he? He's the one who's called the devil, which is slanderer. He is called Satan, which is accuser. And he's the one who is the deceiver of the whole world. And so in Revelation chapter 12, verse nine, we see that this ancient serpent is the devil, the deceiver, 
He is the one who is Satan himself. And later on, of course, in Revelation chapter 20, you have the same understanding that this dragon, the ancient serpent, the devil and Satan, he was bound for a thousand years. So the text in Genesis does not specifically say Satan or devil. But we understand that throughout scripture that the devil is a liar. He's the father of lies. He's the one who is a murderer. He brings murder into the whole creation. He brings death where God is the author of life. And so we want to see the totality of scripture here telling us about the work of the devil trying to separate us from God. But we see the work of Christ who separates us from the devil by crushing his head. Pastor Wolf Miller, another question regarding the Sunday morning service from Stan Strong for Peach via Twitter saying, is it allowed in the divine service for women to serve as ushers? I don't think we have a biblical mandate for that. And so I don't think we want to say that it would be a sin, but I do think we're given some pretty clear instructions on worship and the roles of men and women in worship and so that there should be a distinction. Even when Paul is talking about the church in Corinth, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, when he's giving instructions for the men who are praying and prophesying and the women who are praying and prophesying, he said there should be a distinction between the two. The men do not have their heads covered and the women do. So even in that time when the Holy Spirit was calling directly prophets and prophetesses to serve in the church, which he doesn't any longer, that was for that unique apostolic age, even then there was to be a distinction because of the created order. The Lord created Adam first and then Eve from Adam so that the woman comes forth from the man. This is the logic that Paul will use. And then he says, just like the head of Christ is God, so the head of man is Christ and the head of woman is man. And so that created order is preserved in the Lord's church. So when you have something like ushering, it's an opportunity to show forth that good ordering of God's creation and have the men in those places of service and protection. I think that's good, and it would grow out of the biblical wisdom that the Lord wants us to reflect, not only in the home, but also, and maybe even especially, in his service. A question from Mark, Pastor Ketchelmeyer. Two questions, actually, but related. First, in Genesis 11, the story of Tower of Babel It says the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, and later the Lord said, let us go up and confuse their language because the Lord visited Jacob and Abraham and others in Theophanies. Can we assume that he did so here as well? So this first question about Genesis in the Tower of Babel, I think the first thing that we want to understand is the let us go down. I mean, this is uh, all three persons of the Blessed Holy Trinity talking in unison in conversation, just like we have in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, where it's let us make man in our own image and likeness, testifying to us of the plurality of persons of the Holy Trinity. So in these two passages in Genesis chapter 1 and here in Genesis chapter 11, we see the work of the Trinity in conversation about what they are going to do and how they're going to proceed with that. Now, throughout the whole Old Testament, what we have is the sending forth then of God's word. The second person of the Holy Trinity is the one who is the spokesman. And so this is where we get into this whole understanding of the theophanies, or that the Son is always the one who appears, who is the one who reveals. He's the eternal word. And so throughout the Old Testament, uh, you'll have these theophanies, the appearances of 
Yahweh. So we want to see primarily that this is going to be the second person of the Holy Trinity, that this is going to be the messenger of Yahweh or the messenger of God, the Malach Yahweh, or as sometimes we translate it in our Bibles, the angel of the Lord. But this is the one who appears that you see, and this is the one that, of course, uh, John tells us about in John's Gospel, chapter 1, that no one has ever seen God. Now, when you look through the Old Testament, you see people seeing God, like Jacob and Abraham or Moses, just as was expressed in this question. But we are told by the evangelist that no one has ever seen God, but is the only begotten God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So it's Christ, the Savior. It's the second person of the Holy Trinity, the eternal word, the Son of God, who is the one who continues to appear and to make known the Father. If you want access to the Father, you look through the Son. If you want to see the Father, you see the Son. If you want to hear the Father, you hear the Son. So yes, in those theophanies, we would see this again and again with Jacob and Abraham. You see these in these events like in Genesis chapter 32, where Jacob, of course, is he says, let's name this place the face of God. Why? Because he's seen God face to face, yet my life has been delivered. So it's Peniel, the face of God. That's the place there. Or or you also see that Jacob in Bethel, house of God, because this is where God came to him. This is second person of the Holy Trinity is the one who appears. So whenever Yahweh is appearing to Abraham or to Jacob or to Moses or the prophets, we look at this as the second person of the Holy Trinity. The second question is for you, Pastor Wolf Miller. When Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, was the bread and wine he gave to the apostles his true body and blood? Because he said so, I believe it was. However, he was not yet resurrected and using his glorified body, which was not limited by physical barriers like locked doors or specific locality. Though not yet glorified, was he already making himself present in the bread and wine as he distributed it to the apostles? Yes. The same words give the same reality on that first Lord's Supper as they do in every subsequent Lord's Supper. So the Lord Jesus was feeding his apostles his very body and blood, even though his body and blood was also present in that normal human way. It's also now present in the sacramental way that he wants it to be present with us to give us the forgiveness of sins. So I think this in, the instinct of the questioner is 100% right. This idea that Jesus was not yet fully glorified, it's true. And yet even in his state of humiliation, that glory would shine through. It's what the Lutheran confessors call the translocal mode of presence by which Jesus, for example, walked on water or walked through the crowd that pressed in on him to cast him over the cliff. So we see a few examples of how Jesus was able to be present in a way that was unique, that we cannot be present because of his divine and human natures united in the single person. In fact, they even mentioned that when Jesus' birth might have been that way, they say, as some suspect, so that Jesus was able to put his body and blood there in the bread and wine for his disciples to eat and drink as he does for us every week by that power by which he also holds all things together and upholds the universe by the word of his power. And so that's a great comfort for us to know that this is the same meal that Jesus instituted and the same gifts that he gave that first night he's also giving to us. I'm Todd Wilkin. You're connected to Issues Etc. We're responding to your unanswered Bible questions with Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer, author of Reading Isaiah with Luther, and Pastor Brian Wolfmiller, author of His American Christianity Failed. These books are published by Concordia Publishing House, their phone number 1-800-325-3040, or browse before you buy on the Talk On Demand archives page at issuesetc.org. A question from Drew in Michigan on Reason is next. 
The fundamental question that these parables ask is this, is it possible for someone who has fallen away from the faith, a baptized child, to be brought to repentance? And the answer is yes, a thousand times yes. It has to be yes. Or I'm damned. And so are you. Pastor Peter Bender speaking at the 2023 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. But if we as earthly parents love our children in spite of the fact that they rebel and maybe wander from home, how much more does the Father's love for us in Christ Jesus never cease? That is the birthright that you and I have been given in our baptism. That is our consolation. You can watch and listen to Pastor Peter Bender's teaching, Making the Case for a Dying Man's Consolation, and all of the presentations from this year's conference for a contribution of $300. It's available via on-demand video stream or podcast. Learn more at issuesetc.org. You can teach lay people theology. You're listening to Issues Etc. In a child's life, meaningful relationships matter when it comes to academic development and spiritual nurture. In Lutheran schools, students know they are uniquely and wonderfully made in God's image. Each day in over 1,800 Lutheran schools, children experience a rich, academic, loving, and Christ-centered environment where they can explore and develop their God-given talents and abilities. To find a Lutheran school near you, visit lcms.org schools. The days are shortening, and it's soon back to school. Ad Crucem has beautiful posters and art to adorn your home school or classroom, and we print them right here in our Colorado workshop. Come and see our various prints by Cronach, Holbein, Bonat, Tintoretto and Caravaggio. Stock up on our daily prayer posters, creed posters and other beautiful Christ-focused artworks. Visit adcrucem.com. That's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M dot com. Welcome back to Issues Etc. We're responding to your unanswered Bible questions. Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer, Pastor Brian Wolfmiller are our guests. Pastor Ketchelmeyer, Drew in Michigan, says, Magisterial and ministerial use of reason has been on my mind lately. It seems so commonplace in today's world for people, believers and non-believers, to elevate human reason above God's special revelation in Scripture to its own form of idolatry. We know that reason is to play a ministerial role in faith, but... What are some of the key ways to bring reason into check and help take all of our thoughts captive to Christ? Well, I think that uh, first with uh, Drew, with your question, we need to uh, explain to the listeners uh, so that we, we understand clearly this distinction between a magisterial or a ministerial use of reason. When we talk about magisterial, we think about majesty or a king, royalty reigning. And so a magisterial is that you're reigning or ruling. So the reason itself is ruling over the scripture. In other words, you're trying to make the word of God say what you want it to say, what your reason says. The problem we have, of course, is this limited logic. And we we can't know all of these things. We've lost this perfect knowledge of salvation that Adam and Eve had originally in the garden. So we're in a situation where the reason itself cannot rule over the scripture. We cannot make God's word mean what our minds want it to mean. Instead, what we want is we want God's word to change our minds. So when you use the ministerial use, this is you're using the logic, you're using the ability of your senses, the ability to think things through so that you can 
have this understanding as God communicates. So when God communicates to us, he doesn't communicate through feelings or experiences. He communicates directly with his word. He speaks. And so we have that written word so that we can be certain and sure that this is God speaking to us. But that written word, of course, is written with grammatical structure in the languages originally of Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek, and then you got Latin, and you have German, you have English. I mean, so you're working with the grammatical structure, so you have to have a logic or a reason, a capacity, a capability to kind of communicate and understand how speech works. So that's the ministerial use of logic or reason. And this is in which you use the reason to serve the understanding of God's word. So God's word speaks to you and you say yes and amen and thank you. And you don't try to overrule the word of God. That would be magisterial. But in a servant's role, a ministerial role, you're listening to God's word and your mind that God has given to you as a gift is thinking these things through. And of course, it's the Holy Spirit who is working through that word. So when we talk about this ministerial role, Again, the issue is always going to be faith. So faith is always going to have to be over the reason. So, I mean, that's the big key here, that uh, when you have all these other different kinds of Protestant groups, whichever they may be, a Calvinistic or Baptistic or whatever they might be, they have a tendency to go towards reason. And so you say something like we're talking about the Lord's Supper, where Jesus says, this is my body, and they have the tendency to default to reason and say, well, that can't be possible, so therefore it's not true. But that's not how God's word works. See, that would be a, a magic ministerial, you're overriding what scripture says. But a ministerial rule is you actually, you take the communication that God gives to you in his word, and it's clear, this is my body. It means what he intends it to mean. I mean, this is what Jesus says very clearly. He doesn't say the opposite. The opposite would be, this is not my body, if it was some kind of a symbolic or representative type of a way. But Jesus is very clear. So you use a ministerial use, you use your logic, you use your reason in service to the text itself so that you can understand the grammatical structure. So the key is always going to be Christ. It's going to be the gospel. It's going to be faith in the person and work of Christ. And so whenever you get into the issue of trying to use reason to override what God says, you're also in the boat of trying to use your reason to override what God does, as we see like in baptism. When we talk about in baptism, we have been united in the death of Christ. We have been buried with Christ. We've been raised with Christ. And so faith clings to that and says, yes and amen. Or baptism now saves. And we say, yes and amen. And so a ministerial use Again, as service to the text, it looks to what God is teaching us, what God is telling us about the personal work of Christ, what he does for us. It's for you that he gives you the body in the Lord's Supper. It's for you that he unites your body with his body in holy baptism. And so the, the key is always going to be faith in the person and work of Christ. So you can kind of see this summed up in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, where we are warned about this. And so Paul, the apostle, is talking to the baptized and says, See to it that no one takes you captive 
by philosophy or empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So I think at the end, that's going to be always the key here, according to Christ, according to the person and work of Christ, what Christ has done for you. And when we hear about the promises of what Christ has done for you, what Christ is doing for you in the present, that's always going to be faith. Faith receives the promise. When you get into the realm of reason and logic, it's not about receiving the promise. When you have a magisterial use of reason, you're trying to teach God what God should be thinking or what God should be saying. But in that ministerial, you're a student in God himself is the teacher, the Holy Spirit's a teacher. And what's the the role of the person of the Holy Spirit is to bring us to Christ. Apart from the Holy Spirit, we cannot come to Christ. We cannot believe in Christ, but it's the Holy Spirit who is the teacher and working with the text of scripture, the written word, so we can be certain and sure that we're hearing the good word, the good news about Jesus, the one who brings us salvation. I would add that there's opportunity not only for our reason, our mind to serve the Lord and his word, but also our heart, our emotions and our feelings and our desires and also our strength. So when Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength, he was invoking the ministerial use of everything that we have. So we also don't let our feelings or our emotions rule over what God says is true, which sounds something like this. I don't feel God is with me. Well, he's promised. I don't feel forgiven. He's forgiven you. Your feelings have to serve the truth of God's word. And also the other way around, like I think God wants me to be happy, so I'll go break this commandment. No, 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 no. God's word rules over our feelings. He rules over our actions and all these things so that we're serving and worshiping Jesus with all that the Lord has given us. And maybe just a quick thing on how to exercise this, the Lord will provide opportunities. So as Pastor Ketchermeyer suggested, when we read the Lord's word, when we wrestle with the promises that God has given us in this life, there will be opportunity for our reason to fall down and worship the Lord Jesus and trust in the promises that he's given, even when they don't make sense to us. Pastor Wolf Miller, Julian, via Twitter, what is the meaning of be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet a reference to what St. Paul writes in First Thessalonians 4? Yeah, this is a beautiful text. It's oftentimes mistranslated or misinterpreted as this idea of a secret rapture, as if Jesus is going to come back seven plus years before the end of this era and zap the church out. That's not what's being discussed here. The Thessalonians were worried that they had missed the second coming. And they knew from St. Paul's preaching that when the Lord returns, the dead would be raised. But the question is, well, what about those who are still alive? What happens to them? Let's say Jesus came back today and we who are alive, well, what happens to us? And so he wants to give them the comfort that the Lord will also give the resurrection to the living. So we believe in the resurrection of the dead, also the resurrection of the living. And that's this great transformation that he's talking about. And that really makes sense to the text. So starting at verse 13, we don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. That would be those who have died in Christ. So that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. So when the Lord Jesus returns, the dead in Christ will come back with him. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, 
and the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So when Jesus returns in glory, he will call the dead up out of the grave, and then he will transform us so that we who are alive and remain will be able to meet him and greet him and return with him. I suppose like the kids running out of the house when their dad gets home from a long trip and they run to meet him in the front yard and they hold his hand as he comes into the house. So we also will be transformed in the twinkling of an eye and will meet the Lord Jesus and accompany him back to the earth for his work of division and inaugurating the new heavens and the new earth where the righteous dwell. So this is the parallel text to what Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51 and following, same exact doctrine, the doctrine of the resurrection of the living, that we who are alive and remain to the end will be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, and we will be given a glorified body and soul altogether, even apart from dying. And that's what the Lord is promising there. No wonder Paul says, comfort one another with those words. Can you imagine, Todd? I mean, just the trumpet would sound and this body of sin would be transformed. And our soul, which is corrupted by sin, would be transformed in a moment to reflect the perfect holiness that is ours in Christ. That'll be a beautiful moment. Meredith in Huntersville, North Carolina, for Pastor Ketchermeyer. In this morning's Treasury of Daily Prayer, the Old Testament reading is from 2 Samuel 6, verses 1 through 19. My question is in reference to verse 14, and David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. Is this text used to justify liturgical dance? I found it cringeworthy when I saw a liturgical dance performed during a Lutheran worship service some time ago. I would like your thoughts on dance in church and what David's dancing with all his might might have looked like. I can't imagine that it looked like what I saw. (laughs) <laughs> so, yeah, Meredith, I like this cringeworthy, uh, interesting terminology here. But I think that the question is, is this text used as a justification for liturgical dance? This is always going to be the problem with proof texting. And what that means is you have already a presupposition of what you want to do or what you want to say, what you want to think. I mean, this has to do very similarly with the whole idea of the logic and the reason. I mean, you're going to go through and you're going to reason through this and say, well, I want to do liturgical dance. Let me go find a proof text that proves this to be true. When we look at the scripture itself, I think that it's always helpful to see the scripture as what the author is intending for us. The Holy Spirit is the teacher. So what is the Holy Spirit trying to teach us? And when you look at a passage like this in the historical narrative, and again, when I say narrative, I don't mean fictitious story. What I mean is the account, the account of what took place. And so you see this account of what's taking place here, and it's good in theology, always good theology to make a proper distinction. And we want to make a distinction between a descriptive or a prescriptive passage. I mean, is this passage describing for us what took place, what David did? Is it describing it, telling us the events as they unfolded? Or is this 
prescriptive? Is it prescribing for us what we are to do and how we are to follow? The text itself is very clear that this is not prescriptive. So it's not teaching us and telling us how we are to do liturgical dance and to do it however we want to do it. But instead, it's descriptive of what David was doing in that day. And I think that when you look at the passage itself in the context, because this is always the problem with the proof text, a proof text is you hijacked it, you take it out of the context and you have a separate text itself. And so you want to look at this in the context and see what's taking place. So there's quite a few things that are taking place here. Uh, Number one, this is David who is celebrating. And so it's this circle dance that he's doing. It, It can be this celebratory mode where it's kind of, in a way, silly. In a way, it's kind of a mockery of the ways of the world, but it's rejoicing in what God has done. God has brought the high and mighty off the thrones, and he's lifted up the humble. And so what is the context behind this is that Saul was originally anointed the king of Israel, and David, of course, is the one who is then going to be anointed as the second king. And so Saul is brought down off the throne, and David is exalted to the throne. So this is going to be the key with Saul's line ending, and now you have the beginning of David's line. So it's in this context that David is dancing. And so, yes, it says that David danced mightily, or he danced with all his strength. I think that in a way, this is what Pastor Wolf Miller was saying about a ministerial use of the activity of, let's say, dancing. He's doing this to God's glory for what God has done. And so this text tells us all also that David was wearing a linen ephod. I mean, this is kind of like a, a, a vest-like garment. I mean, it's a liturgical priestly garment that would be used in priestly activity. So does it mean then that David is now a priest? No, but it does mean that something unique and celebratory is taking place here in this ephod. And so what's happening here is the Ark of the Covenant. They are bringing the Ark of the Covenant out of the house of the Lord. And so they're sounding forth the horns, uh, the, the horn, of course, with this either military or a festive kind of a setting. And this is a festive setting here that the ark is being brought out. And then the text notes after this verse in verse 14, it says that the daughter of Saul, Michal, who is going to be the wife of David. Well, she looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. So what we're seeing is a description of what took place. David is dancing with all his might, and Michal, his wife, who was a daughter of Saul, is despising David. David's rejoicing in the victory that God has given, that God is the one who has anointed and exalted David to the throne, and God is the one who had anointed and had taken Saul off the throne. And so the key here then goes on where there's a conversation where David goes back to the household with Michal, his wife, to bless the household. And so he returns to bless the household, but Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of the servants, female and servants as one of the vulgar fellows would shamelessly uncover himself. I mean, so 
again, this is descriptive, not prescriptive. I mean, if you want to look at the text itself, what she's saying is what she saw, and what she saw was David doing things that you probably don't want to emulate in liturgical dancing. So it's definitely not a prescriptive of dance like David in a vulgar way, in a way that's silly, in a way that's kind of mocking this whole way of the world. And so don't do that. But the key here is going to be that McCall is not going to have a child to be the heir of Saul. So again, Saul is taken off the throne. David is the one who's now on the throne, and there will be no heir to the throne from Saul. McCall is daughter of Saul. And so you see very clearly here that the throne of God is going to be established because the text will end with the note that she's not going to have any children. But it's in the very next chapter in chapter seven, where now we begin to talk about the heir of David. We begin to talk about the eternal kingdom. We begin to talk about how God himself is going to establish a dynasty, a Davidic dynasty for David. Ultimately, this is pointing to the person and work of Christ, the true David, the son of David that we're waiting for. So the text itself is describing these events that took place where you have the Ark of the Covenant moving. That's the the location of the promised presence of God, which is always going to be a depiction of the person and work of Christ who comes to us, Emmanuel, to dwell with us, to give to us the assurance of salvation, forgiveness of sins, and holiness. So the text itself is in that setting, describing these events, and especially in the next chapter, the key is not, hey, this is a prescription for liturgical dance. The key is that David is now the king, and his heir will have an eternal kingdom, and that heir is going to be Jesus. So the focus is going to be on Jesus. Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer is our guest, along with Pastor Brian Wolfmiller. We're responding to your unanswered Bible questions. Deborah has a question about aliens next. How do the global flood, circumcision, and the Israelites wandering in the wilderness foreshadow the baptismal flood in Christ? Find out in the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for August, The Baptismal River, Studying the Sacrament Throughout Scripture. This new Bible study is published by Concordia Publishing House, their phone number 1-800-325-3040, or find out more about The Baptismal River at issuesetc.org. The Baptismal River, Studying the Sacrament Throughout Scripture. Luther Academy provides additional theological education for our mission partners around the world, specifically pastors who are asking for additional education but do not have the necessary resources in their own church bodies. By donating to Luther Academy today, you will be supplying food, housing, books, professors, and travel for Lutheran pastors who attend our conferences. To learn more about Luther Academy and how you can donate today, visit lutheracademy.com. LutherAcademy.com. Old theology, new technology. You're listening to Issues Etc. When you hear the word heresy, what do you think of? Do you think of some ancient debate the church has gotten over and forgotten? Do you think of some stubby old theologians just arguing over things that don't matter? There's a lot more to heresies than you might think. And that's what the August issue of The Lutheran Witness is all about. Heresies, ancient and modern to pick up your copy, visit cph.org witness or visit our website, witness.lcms.org to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. 
Holy Cross Lutheran Church, Moline, Illinois, invites you to join us in receiving the Lord's gifts in word and sacrament. Sunday services are at 8.15 and 10.45 a.m., with Bible class and Sunday school at 9.30 a.m. We are located in the Quad Cities at 4107 21st Avenue, Moline, Illinois. Welcome in the name of our Lord. Issues Etc. regular guest Dr. Donna Harrison writes our Wittenberg Trail feature for the latest issue of the online Issues Etc. journal, Christ, Our First Love. She says, I was struggling against Lutheranism when a medical school colleague handed us a copy of Luther's Large Catechism. Mark and I could see that the Large Catechism was the best explanation of the Ten Commandments we had ever encountered, but I think the Large Catechism especially struck me since Luther wrote, as a devout man grieved by the errors of the church who found Christ in the scripture. So we decided to dip our toes into Lutheran waters. That's the Wittenberg Trail feature, Christ Our First Love, in the latest Issues Etc. journal. You can subscribe absolutely free at our website, issuesetc.org. Click the red subscription button, enter your email address, and we will send you the latest Issues Etc. journal for free. We're talking with Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer and Pastor Brian Wolfmiller responding to your unanswered Bible questions. Pastor Wolf Miller, here's a question from Deborah. There's been a lot of coverage about aliens lately. How do aliens fit into Christianity? One of the members of my congregation once jokingly asked, is this what was referring to aliens? Quoting Jesus in John chapter 10, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there'll be one flock, one shepherd. I saw that question. I said, oh, man, I hope Pastor Ketchermeyer gets that one. <laughs> we'll see. If, I'll, I'll toss it over to him and give him a stab at it. I, so just on the John 10 text, that's not a good reading. The other sheep have to be Jesus talking also about the Gentiles. So he's gathering up a flock from among those Jewish people that were believing in his name and following him. The other sheep here in the context refers to those who were not circumcised, those who had not grown up with Moses and were not descendants of Abraham, but they would also hear and believe and become part of the Lord's flock. It is crazy that there's so much talk of aliens. And I suppose that, I mean, as Christians, and this might be a little bit cheeky, but we do believe in extraterrestrial beings. We've always confessed that the Lord has created angels who live off planet, I suppose, and who interact with us from a different dimension. But the key thing, whenever we get into some of these mystical conversations, or maybe it's not mystical, maybe it's they seem mysterious to us, the important thing to ask is, what's the doctrine? What is the teaching? So in Luther's day, there was people having visions of all sorts of ghosts, and he would ask, well, what are they teaching you? And they were teaching purgatory. And by the fact that they were teaching purgatory, you knew that they weren't truly ghosts, but rather they were demons who were deceiving people. We have something similar in the last generation with these near-death experiences. These were happening all over. And we had to say, well, what is it teaching? And I think the thing that it was teaching is everybody dies and goes somewhere nice. Well, th th then we know it's a deceptive doctrine because that's not what the scripture reveals to us. So the key thing, whenever we meet these aliens who are hanging around, the key question is going to be, what's your doctrine of Christ? And who knows, maybe they'll be orthodox and then we'll <laughs> know that it's something true. But always we know that the scriptures are true and we are t always testing the spirits, however they show up, by their confession of God and Christ. 
I think that's a great answer. My, I, I laugh and I chuckle because in our own household, this is a, a big question with my daughter-in-law, Madison Molly, and she's been having this question about the aliens because it's it's in the news. I mean, it's all over the place, so people are talking about it. I was doing Bible study a few weeks ago, and we were doing Isaiah chapter 44, where you have, thus says Yahweh, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, Yahweh of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God who is like me. Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me since I appointed an ancient people. And so I read the ancient people, and then somebody comes to me after class and says, are we talking about aliens? Because this is the ancient aliens, you know, this whole idea. What's this ancient people? Is it some alien, some life form outside of our creation here on earth? So I think as Pastor Wolfmiller said, it's what is the doctrine? It's If it's getting you to sway away, to depart from God's word and not look at the personal work of Christ as if there's these extraterrestrials who did not need salvation, that there is no such thing as a sin for them. I, I think that's where it becomes very problematic because we know that sin itself self from humanity has impacted all of creation. So that's why we call it the fall of creation. And so if we have these aliens talking about something else where you don't need the forgiveness of sins, where you don't need Christ crucified, then we know that this is of the devil. So that's going to be the key here. Where are we going with this? What's the emphasis here? And if you're focusing and meditating upon these aliens, well, what is the one thing you're probably not meditating upon is the person and work of Christ and not rejoicing in the voice of God and giving thanks for the goodness of God and what he's done to bring the restoration of creation through the incarnation. I heard someone joking about this and they said, well, if there's aliens out there, why would they want to come visit us? But you just could, you could imagine if there was some sort of intelligent life form that God created on another planet and they'd be like, what do you mean? Why are we coming here? This is where our Lord took on flesh. <laughs> That's like, we wanted to go to Israel on a trip too, to see where these things happen. So, <laughs> so if the aliens don't show up confessing the Nicene Creed, then we should be worried. <laughs> Well, I, I think the other issue is C.S. Lewis writes this trilogy, the science fiction trilogy with Paralandra, where you have this, this planet where you didn't have the fall yet. But of course, what C.S. Lewis was doing was just, it was a fictitious, what would it be like in a world where the fall hadn't happened yet? And then all of a sudden, now we're talking aliens. Timothy, for Pastor Wolf Miller, as a member of the laity, may I go through Luther's small catechism with a group of friends and acquaintances? Not only may you, but must you. I mean, this is what the small catechism is for, for rejoicing in the doctrine with all of our friends. Yeah. And we should be, you know, we, we mentioned earlier this restriction that our Lutheran fathers put on preaching and teaching and administering the sacraments, that we were called to do that in the church and in a public way. God be praised. We rejoice in that order. But every Christian is a theologian, a student of the scripture, and it belongs to every Christian what the Lord says, that we would speak of him as we rise up and as we lie down and as we walk on the way, that the Lord's word would always be on our mouth. And that word from Deuteronomy 6 that gives us to always be talking about the Lord's word, meditating in our minds, in our mouths, our conversations, that is quoted by Luther in the introduction of the small catechism. So the small catechism gives us all these things that we want to be studying and talking about. So absolutely, and there should be no fear and no hesitation in any Christian by bringing the things of God, the word of God, and the doctrine of the catechism and talking about this with our friends and family. God be praised. A question from Mary, Pastor Ketchmeyer. Once the Holy Spirit enters our body at baptism, does he ever leave? 
Yeah. The question you're asking, it, it, it always makes me want to ask the question, why? Why are we asking this? Who's teaching you to ask this question? And the reason why I say this is it, usually it seems to me that this question comes up in a Baptist circles, which they teach the once saved, always saved, that man-made logic trying to understand salvation, that if salvation, you've been saved from your sins, well, that's a past tense event. And then now you have been once saved, always always saved. That's not in the scripture, but it's using the logic, the reason in a magisterial role is you're trying to make sense of things. If Jesus saved you on the cross, then you're saved. If you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit, then you've been sealed. And so it's a done deal and everything's there. So I think that we we don't want to go in that direction. We don't want to go in that magisterial use. And again, going back to the first question, how do we make clear of that, make sure that we don't do that. And I think we want to always go to the text and look at the text itself and see what the text is telling us. You go to the whole day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit is poured out, you have the the gift of the person of the Holy Spirit, you have the gifts of the work of the Holy Spirit, that he's the one that keeps working in us in the baptized with his word. And so the key is always going to be what is the Holy Spirit doing in dwelling, working with the word? So that's always going to be key. And so when you have in the book of Acts, when the Holy Spirit is poured out on the day of Pentecost, because Christ has ascended into heaven as the high priest, the mediator, well, the Holy Spirit is working through the word, never disconnected with the word itself. And so you have this understanding when the people of God reject that word, this is where you come back with this very harsh word of law. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you have always resisted the Holy Spirit. So there is a warning in the scripture of resisting the Holy Spirit. So again, when we look at scripture, we want to see what are we being taught? What is God teaching us about the Christian faith, about the knowledge of salvation? And so we're taught not to resist the Holy Spirit. If you resist the work of the Holy Spirit in the word, you will resist and reject the work of Christ in his body in the incarnation. And so that's always going to be the key. And so you have these passages that will warn us about this work of the Holy Spirit. And I think that's where we really need to focus our attention, not on these kind of debates of human logic and trying to say once saved, always saved. And because you have the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit can't leave you. Don't really go down those paths. Just go and let the text itself teach so that you have in First Thessalonians chapter 5, do not quench the Spirit. So that's a warning. Don't quench the Spirit. And so, yes, the baptized has the promise. Uh, we have the promise of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but we also have the understanding that God is using his word, the word of the gospel, the message of Christ crucified. This is what the Holy Spirit is using. And so don't quench the Holy Spirit. Or in Ephesians chapter 4, also speaking to the baptized, do not grieve the Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So again, this is a passage where it's talking about being sealed by the Holy Spirit. Yes, that's a done deal. That's a promise. But we're also warned about grieving. Don't grieve or sadden the Holy Spirit by doing what? resisting and rejecting what the Holy Spirit has done. So when you get to Romans chapter 8, and we're talking about the baptized and the gift of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. 
Those are the ones who are being ruled by sin. Sin is reigning in them, and faith is dead. You have this is the whole understanding of a mortal sin. It kills faith. So on the one hand, you have those who are living in the flesh. They cannot please God because it's impossible to please God without faith. But then on the other hand, however, you are not of the flesh. So this is what Paul is assuring us as a baptized. We are in the spirit. But then he adds that kind of caveat, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So the key here with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is, yes, this is a gift and a promise to the baptized. The Holy Spirit is working a new thing, a new creation, regeneration, renewal, and we are beginning to walk in newness of life. We're beginning to despise sin, which is not natural. I mean, by nature, we actually love sin. But what is happening now is the Holy Spirit is working in us to despise sin, to begin to walk in new ways, to begin to think in new ways and to speak in new ways. So I think that when we look at these passages of the Holy Spirit, we just let this passage itself teach us. Let the passage itself tell us what God wants us to know about salvation, that those who are in the flesh, those who have ruling a sin that's reigning over them, I mean, sin will remain in us, but it shall not reign over us. So, I mean, that's always going to be the key, the warnings about resisting the Holy Spirit and resisting the work of the Holy Spirit by refusing to listen to the word of Christ and Christ crucified. Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer is Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod pastor and author of the book, Reading Isaiah with Luther. Brian, thank you. Great to be here, Todd. Pastor Brian Wolfmiller is pastor of St. Paul and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Churches in Austin, Texas. He posts theology on the YouTube channel Wolfmiller One, and he's author of several books, including His American Christianity Failed. Brian, thanks. Thank you. Thursday on Issues Etc., we'll talk about Southern Illinois University Edwardsville ordered to pay a Christian student for silencing her conservative views. Our guests will be Maggie DeYoung and Matthew Hoffman. And we'll continue our Kids Have Questions series talking with Pastor Jonathan Connor about mental health and the problem of evil. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for listening. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc., is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. I am beautiful because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I am accepted because I'm a part of His family through Jesus' shed blood. Unity Lutheran School in East St. Louis, Illinois, shines the light of Christ in one of the most impoverished cities in America. Learn how to support their mission work at unityesl.org. Unityesl.org. Today, with the help of the Holy Spirit, I say yes to God in His ways. Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Collinsville, Illinois, is happy to support the Christ-centered, 
cross-focus ministry of issues, etc. Join us for worship, Bible classes, youth ministry, and other opportunities to grow in Christ. We have a Christian day school for children in preschool to 8th grade. We are located at 1300 Beltline Road. Call us at 618-344-3151 or visit www.goodshepherdcollinsville.org.